From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. Aisha Roscoe, good morning. The 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade would have been today. We take a look at abortion providers now that Roe and the guaranteed access to abortion is gone. And there are more black and Hispanic Republicans in Congress now, but the numbers are still pretty low. When we're looking at the black elected officials, like that new high watermark, get ready for it. Okay. Is five. Plus, the Real Housewives franchise is all about drama, but now some of that drama is ending up in the courtroom. It's Sunday, January 22nd. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Ten people are dead and ten wounded in Monterey Park, California, after a gunman opened fire at a ballroom dance studio last night. NPR's Amy Held reports police say a male suspect is at large and are asking the public for help in finding him. A Saturday night out at a dance venue shattered by a man with a gun. Police got the call after 10 p.m. When officers arrived on scene, they observed numerous individuals, patrons of the location, pouring out of the location screaming. Andrew Meyer with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office says the suspect had already fled and offered no description of him. We're reviewing all surveillance video following all leads so we're not going to leave anything unturned. Also unknown, a motive. The owner of the Star Dance Studio is Chinese-American in a city that is majority Asian-American. Monterey Park was hosting a Lunar New Year festival that had recently ended for the day. It was supposed to continue today. No more, says Monterey Park Police Chief Scott Weiss. Out of an abundance of caution and in reverence for the victims, we are canceling the event. Amy Held, NPR News. More classified material has been found at President Biden's home in Delaware. Justice Department officials spent more than 12 hours at the home on Friday. And NPR Scott Detrow reports they took possession of several classified documents. Department of Justice officials arrived at Biden's house at 9.45 a.m. and spent the rest of the day searching his home for materials. Biden's personal attorney, Bob Bauer, says the searchers found six documents marked classified. Bauer says Biden and his legal representatives fully cooperated with the search. While the Biden White House has chafed at comparisons to former President Trump's possession of classified documents, there are now two major parallels in the two cases. The attorney general has now appointed a special prosecutor to investigate both the former and sitting president's actions. And now both the former and sitting president's homes have been searched by law enforcement. Scott Detrow, NPR News, Washington. President Biden is spending the weekend in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, and did not respond to shouted questions about White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain. Klain is reported to be preparing to leave his post. China is reporting a further 13,000 COVID-related deaths in hospitals in the week leading up to the Lunar New Year holiday. Another half million COVID patients receiving hospital treatment. The BBC's Michael Bristow. Beijing has now admitted to more than 70,000 deaths since it relaxed its tough pandemic restrictions suddenly in December. But this number only records people who've died in hospital, not at home. There are also reports that doctors are being discouraged from putting COVID on death certificates. Some analysis suggests the true number of dead could be 10 times higher than Beijing has acknowledged. China says most people have now been infected. But with tens of millions of people on the move during the current spring festival holiday, there are fears that COVID will spread further. And you're listening to NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. This word, Marty Walsh, is in the running to take over as President Biden's new chief of staff. The Associated Press and the New York Times report that the U.S. Labor Secretary and former Boston mayor is on a short list of possible candidates to step in for Ron Klain. Klain is expected to step down from the post soon. A South End gay bar could soon become a cannabis dispensary. The Boston Herald reports that Cathedral Station is set to close and make way for the shop. The location's near a park, a high school, and two homeless shelters, and the Herald reports that's causing some concern among some residents. It is unclear when Cathedral Station will close, but it could take over a year to approve the dispensary proposal. A 21-year-old man has died in a New Hampshire skiing accident. UNH student Ben Bennett was found unresponsive in the woods off a Cannon Mountain Trail Wednesday after suffering significant trauma. Just three days earlier, 15-year-old Sidney Quimby died in a skiing accident at Gunstock Mountain in New Hampshire. Ukrainians in Boston are marking the country's Independence Day today. They'll gather this afternoon at the State House and form a human chain of unity on the Freedom Trail. On this day in 1919, over 300,000 Ukrainians formed a human chain as they fought for independence. Today's event is hosted by the Ukrainian Cultural Center of New England. A big celebration took place last night in the Neshoba Valley. That's the Vista Philharmonic performing at the grand opening of the Concert Hall at Groton Hill Music Center. The venue in the town northwest of Boston now has two concert halls, a music school and rehearsal space. WBUR supporters include the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. A mass shooting last night in Monterey Park, just east of Los Angeles, has left at least 10 people dead as they gather to celebrate the Lunar New Year. We'll continue to follow that story throughout the day. Turning now to the 50th anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision, which would have been today and calls for celebration for abortion rights supporters. This anniversary falls just seven months after another landmark Supreme Court abortion decision, which overturned Roe. And in its aftermath, many clinics have been forced to either dramatically shift the services they provide or shut down. NPR Sarah McCammon reports. The Choices Clinic in Memphis, Tennessee, opened in 1974 in response to the Roe v. Wade decision a year earlier. When the Supreme Court announced it would take up the Dobbs case, President Jennifer Pepper says it was clear what was coming. We knew immediately that that meant we would lose abortion access in Tennessee in the next 12 months. And so we began to plan then. 
The clinic began working toward opening a second location in southern Illinois, a state controlled by Democrats with a political environment friendly to abortion rights. In October, they began seeing patients at the new location in Carbondale, Illinois, about a three-hour drive from Memphis. So it has been a wild ride. The Memphis Clinic has stayed open, offering other types of reproductive health care, including a birth center and gender-affirming care. The Trust Women Clinic in Oklahoma City also has pivoted toward other services, including transgender care, family planning, and even medication-based opioid treatment. Rebecca Tong is the co-executive director. We're committed to staying in Oklahoma City, providing care for the same patient population and an expanded patient population. After Oklahoma banned abortion last year, Tong says her organization moved abortion services to its other clinic in Wichita, Kansas, where voters last year rejected a ballot measure seen as unfriendly to abortion rights. Tong says patient volume there has quadrupled since last summer. We are seeing patients twice as many days as we had in the past. The level of staffing that we're at is we've, we've never had this many staff. All of this is new. Many clinics that stay open or reopen in a new location are finding themselves at or near capacity. The clinic at the center of the Dobbs case, Jackson Women's Health, relocated to Las Cruces, New Mexico. Owner Diane Durzis, who operates several clinics nationwide, says they're no longer able to provide a full spectrum of reproductive health care. We are just doing abortions. We are strictly abortion clinics now. That's all we have time to do. It's also a challenging time for patients, says Tammy Kromenacher, whose Red River Women's Clinic moved across the state line from Fargo, North Dakota, to Moorhead, Minnesota last August. You know, it's one community here in Fargo, Moorhead, but the difference between the two states, it's literally night and day. Kromenacher says many of her patients are scared and confused. I literally had a patient yesterday say to me, will I go to jail if I come from North Dakota to Minnesota? She reassured the patient that she would not be penalized for crossing state lines. That said, many legal experts predict that the years to come will bring intensifying efforts by abortion rights opponents to make interstate travel for abortion more difficult, if not illegal. Kristen Hawkins, with the anti-abortion rights group Students for Life, says activists are looking at ways to restrict abortion at the local level, even in states where it remains legal. It's going to be the city campaigns. It's what can we do? You know, is it passing some sort of ordinance in the city council? Is it getting more active on the streets? Julie Burkhardt, who's been involved in the abortion rights movement for decades and co-owns a clinic in Illinois, says clinics have faced opposition for years and will continue finding ways to adapt. You know, we have Dobbs now, but that doesn't mean that, you know, we're done as service providers. That does not mean that we are done as a movement. Some providers in blue states are now offering abortion from mobile health units, another innovation for a post-Roe era meant to get as close to patients as possible. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Washington. Media magnate Rupert Murdoch answered questions under oath for hours this week. Those doing the questioning were lawyers for Dominion Voting Systems and Election Tech Company. It has sued Murdoch's Fox News for $1.6 billion, accusing the network of defamation following the 2020 presidential election. NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik is covering the case and joins us now. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Aisha. 
So uh, Rupert Murdoch doesn't submit to questioning every day of the week. What did Dominion's legal team ask him about? Sure. Well, uh, you know, this case is about these statements that stemmed from the election day and the weeks following in which President Trump's surrogates and even President Trump himself uh, came on the air and made these wild, baseless and untrue assertions about Dominion voting systems trying to throw the election to Joe Biden. You know, they alleged this essentially widespread plan throughout the network to try to regain viewers after they had called Arizona for Joe Biden before pretty much anyone else. And they're trying to see the extent to which Rupert Murdoch himself was involved in shaping coverage in saying, look, we know Trump lost, but we've got to serve our viewers and allow these wild claims and false claims of fraud to continue on our air. So where does the case stand right now? Well, we've learned a lot over the course of this deposition process. It's called discovery. You get depositions from people. You question them under oath. As Murdoch is one of the last to be questioned. You get all kinds of documents and emails and texts and everything else you can scoop up. And we've learned things. We've learned that journalists inside Fox were essentially warning against some of the wild conspiracy theories of election fraud. In fact, in one case, we were able to report a producer warned colleagues against putting Jeanine Pirro on the air to put out some of these conspiracy theories. And there have been other instances as well. Right now, we're wrapping up that so-called discovery pretrial period. There are motions in front of the judge to dismiss the case from Fox. There's a motion from Dominion to say, you know, it's so strong, we don't even need to take it to jury trial, just find it for us. The overwhelming belief is that the judge will essentially deny both of these in large part, and we'll see a trial ahead. So what do we know about Fox's legal defense? Like, what are they saying? That they had no way of knowing about Dominion or that they were in the dark about, you know, what the actual facts of what happened in the election were? Sure. Well, what Fox's lawyers are saying, they're led by Dan Webb, perhaps one of the preeminent corporate litigators in the country, uh, chairman of uh, Winston Strong. He's leading a team that's making the argument that Fox essentially was reporting newsworthy claims of fraud from newsworthy people. That is this then sitting president of the United States, Donald Trump, and his campaign allies and representatives and lawyers, and that it was inherently newsworthy. It would have, you know, they have said in court documents, you know, this was the appropriate response for a journalist to take. And we'll, we'll see, you know, how they expand that argument in court. But in documents recently filed, they said, you know, Dominion is failing to prove that these statements meet all of the tests of defamation that include that there's falseness, that it's harming Dominion, that it's not just simply opinion or hyperbole, and that they had reason to believe that this was clearly untrue in certain circumstances. And in addition, in recent court filings, they've relied on these debunked conspiracy theories that were spread in other forums. And they're saying, look, this is the climate in which Fox News hosts and stars had to process and evaluate what things to present to the public. There were all kinds of claims being made. And yes, you may disagree with them, but this is what the state of play was. How strong then does Dominion's case look? I got to say the media lawyers and the litigators that I've spoken to outside this case say that it's an unusually strong case. Defamation is awfully hard to prove, but that they have a ton of documentation already in public of false claims being presented, amplified, sometimes even endorsed by people on Fox at a time when it was pretty clear from Fox's own reporting and elsewhere that there was no merit to it. But of course, if it goes to trial, that's up to the jury to decide. That's NPR media correspondent David Folkenflick. Thank you so much for joining us. You bet. 
New Zealand has a new interim prime minister following the shock resignation of Jacinda Ardern last week. On Sunday afternoon, local time, the ruling Labour Party voted unanimously to replace Ardern with the current education minister, Chris Hipkins. He was the party's sole nominee. Reporter Ashley Westerman has more. Veteran politician Chris Hipkins may not be a global name like the woman he's replacing, but experts say he's been crucial to Jacinda Ardern's success. He is by many people considered to be Ardern's Mr. Fix-It. When there has been a political or a policy challenge for Ardern, he has been put on the job. That's Madison Burgess-Smith, a political consultant with Iron Duke Partners. Most notably, Hipkins, as the Minister of Health, helped orchestrate New Zealand's world-leading response to the COVID-19 pandemic. You had a very low death toll. You had the virus basically stamped out for a full year within the middle of the pandemic. So when many people see Hipkins, they associate him very closely with the success of the pandemic. She says Hipkins's ties to Ardern may have gotten him the Labour Party's nomination to succeed her, but whether the move will help them maintain power after October's general elections is still unknown. Despite Ardern's rock star international image, things aren't going as well domestically. Over the last year, New Zealanders have heavily criticized the way she's handled the economy and an uptick in crime. Ardern's popularity has taken a hit, and her party is now falling behind in the polls to the opposition. Brad Thomas is a political commentator and former government press secretary. This does make it harder for Labour to win. It's certainly a tough road ahead for Hipkins. What may help, he says, is that Hipkins is more pragmatic about the economy and slightly more hardliner when it comes to law and order. Meanwhile, the career politician also brings to the table a different political prowess. It's certainly not as kind of constrained by ideas of sort of kindness and empathy in the way that he's conducted his political career which probably suits him sort of for the trench warfare of the kind of coming election. Hipkins will officially take over for Ardern when she steps down in February. For NPR News, I'm Ashley Westerman in Boracay, Philippines. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918 and ahead on Weekend Edition Sunday. You'll get a conversation with two of my favorite titans of children's literature, the author John Cheska and the artist Elaine Smith created The Stinky Cheese Man and other fairly stupid tales. And they talk about their work on the 1992 classic children's book for the NPR series picture this. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Welch and Forbes. Over 100 years of experience providing customized private wealth management for individuals and families. WelchForbes.com. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. 
I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Authorities in Southern California are searching for the suspect in last night's shooting at a ballroom dance studio in Monterey Park, east of Los Angeles. Ten people are confirmed dead, another ten wounded. More classified documents have been found at President Biden's home in Wilmington, Delaware. The president's lawyer announced this latest search last night. It was conducted by the FBI, which found material dating back to Biden's time as a senator and as vice president. And the NFL is wrapping up the divisional round of the playoffs today, and the game between Cincinnati and Buffalo will be watched closely. It's the first meeting between the two teams following Buffalo player DeMar Hamlin's on-field emergency. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from LifeLock by Norton, reminding consumers that sensitive information sent online may not always be secure. Learn more at LifeLock.com slash NPR. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at WallaceFoundation.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. We're following tragic news out of California. Last night, 10 people were killed in a mass shooting at a dance hall in Monterey Park, just outside of Los Angeles. Monterey Park is a largely Asian-American city, and the shooting happened on the weekend, kicking off Lunar New Year celebrations. On the line now is Jung Park, who reports on Asian-American communities for the Los Angeles Times. Good morning. Good morning. So I, I gather that you were on the scene not long after the shooting. What can you tell us about what you saw there? I was there about an hour after the shooting happened around 10.22 p.m. Um, it happened at a dance ballroom that's attended uh, mainly by Chinese and Taiwanese Americans. Um, Monterey Park is known as America's first suburban Chinatown. It's where a lot of Chinese and Taiwanese Americans arrived in the U.S. to begin their immigrant life um, and journey uh, here. Um, so in the dance ballroom, um, the shooting happened. Um, and, it, and I talked with a, an owner of a restaurant across who said that three people um, had come into the restaurant, uh, was in, um, and told the owner to shut the door um, and, and told the owner that there was a guy with a machine gun um, who is in the dance ballroom um, and who is shooting um, to, you know, it's shooting indiscriminately at people. Um, and so far we know that 10 people have died and 10 people um, have been injured. Um, and there might have, might be tied to another um, potential shooting in Alhambra. Um, authorities are still looking into that right now. But um, needless to say, it's been a very troubling um, last few hours um, for uh, the folks here in L.A. So what what are authorities saying about the shooting? You're saying it may be linked to another shooting. They're looking into that? Yeah. And, and, the, and, and really, the authorities have not really said anything much about the motives um, or whether this was anti-hate related or they haven't really said anything about the victims, who they are, 
Um, we only know that suspect is male. We don't really know anything else. We know the suspect is still outstanding. So as in he has not been in custody. So we still do not, do not know where he is. Um, so there's a lot to be known about this shooting at the moment. And just and just to be clear, they're they're not saying this is a hate crime yet. They're still looking into that. Yes. And so, what is the significance of this tragedy happening just as Lunar New Year celebrations are underway? Um, I was at the Lunar New Year celebration just a few hours ago in Monterey Park before this happened, um, and this is one of the biggest Lunar New Year celebration in Southern California and really in the country because Monterey Park has tens of thousands of Asian Americans, Chinese Americans, Taiwanese Americans in the city. Um, so this was supposed to be, um, you know, one of those moments that signifies return from the pandemic, return to celebrating, you know, those events and moments, occasions, um, and to have, you know, this day and in tragedy, the second day of the Lunar New Year celebration has been canceled due to um, the shooting. Uh, it's just been a tragic last few hours um, for the people here um, in Monterey Park and San Gabriel Valley and beyond, I think. That's Jung Park, the Asian American Communities reporter for the Los Angeles Times. For the Los Angeles Times, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Byron Donalds of Florida, Michigan's John James, Tony Gonzalez from Texas, all House Republicans who featured prominently in the tortured process to elect their speaker, and all people of color. Politico calls it the rise of the POC Republican. Bracton Booker is national political correspondent for Politico, and he joins us now. Thank you for being here, Bracton. Thanks for having me. So you've been looking into this. Is the GOP getting more diverse in Congress? Like, what are the numbers actually looking like? Well, the short answer is yes. Yes, they are. Um, they have the highest number of uh, Latino elected officials in the GOP caucus. They have the highest number of black elected officials in the GOP conference. Now, when we're looking at the black elected officials, like that new high watermark, get ready for it. Okay. Is five. 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 Out of, out of all of the Republicans? In uh, the- we're, we're talking about Republicans in both the House and the Senate. For the House and the Senate? That, the House and the Senate. <laughs> That is a high watermark of how many black Republicans we've had. We should note that there has been an earlier high watermark for Republican people of color. There were eight black Republicans in the 44th Congress. That was, of course, in 1875 during Reconstruction. And and we know what happened with that didn't work out. Well, yes, yes. If we, if we go, want to go way back, yes. But if we want to talk about the modern era... Yes, we have a new high watermark. And then when we're talking about some Republican operatives, they feel that uh, the 2022 cycle certainly has set a trajectory for uh, the coming election cycles in 2024 and beyond, saying that with these folks who are they consider to be stars, especially when we're talking about Byron Donald, who I've talked to so many Republican operatives when I'm asking about how how does the party work, move forward to appeal to black voters. They name Byron Donalds as, as a star in the making. And I think that's why you saw him during the, the long, drawn-out melodrama that was the speaker contest. So is this a strategy, trying to get more candidates um, of color, trying to not be seen necessarily as a party of mainly white men? Look, I, I think there's a 
there is a strategy in place. I don't know how forceful of a strategy it is right now. If you look really closely, like the, the party's elevating black candidates, but when you're looking at their districts, these are not majority black districts. These are majority white districts for the most part. Mm. And so while the parties are nominating black candidates that can win in these districts, it's not clear that they're making huge inroads with black voters, especially. So, I mean, how are Republicans framing this push for diversity? Because am I mistaken in the fact that don't they often speak out against uh, so-called identity politics? Well, they do. But, you know, when it's convenient to elevate some of the, the people of color who have made some headway in the party, like a Daniel Cameron, who is the current attorney general in uh, Kentucky, who announced he's going to seek the governor's race. And he's uh, a black man. And he's a black man. He came to most people's attention by not filing charges against the officers who, who shot and killed Breonna Taylor in 2020. Now, Republicans will say that, hey, he was following the letter of the law. And so people really lauded uh, Daniel Cameron for standing firm and not bowing to the activist pressure. Well, I mean, I, I know that you said, obviously, some difficulties with Black voters. So is any of this breaking through with any segment of voters of color? Yes, yeah. I mean, look, I, I think you're seeing uh, Asian American voters taking to the Republican Party in larger numbers. I think you're also seeing, obviously, uh, Latino voters, certainly along the border districts, especially Texas, and I think in Florida as well, when they're focusing on not just immigration, but when they're focusing on on economic issues, bread and butter issues, at kitchen table issues, where, where it's focusing on the economy, focusing on small business owners, that they are really making some inroads. And you're seeing in some measure that, that Black men are starting to be open to the idea of, of voting for a Republican. Again, not in large numbers, but, but certainly higher than they have been in previous election cycles. That's Politico National Political Correspondent Brackton Booker. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. When New York Times journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones and her team put together the 1619 Project re-examining the history of slavery in America, the backlash was predictable. The way that the project and I have been uh, attacked um, to me is a, is a great kind of litmus test on, on how race is and works in America. Today on All Things Considered, hear Michelle Martin speak to journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones about those criticisms and on the impact of the project. Tune in by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. Making payments online has never been easier, but it's not without risk. Last week, some Bank of America customers who used the app Zelle said money had disappeared from their accounts. Bank of America said affected customers may have experienced delays, but that the issue had been resolved. Payment platforms like Zelle allow users to move funds directly from one bank account to another. Customers love the convenience. So do scammers trying to trick people into sending money. To find out more about these digital payment services, we reached out to Kate Fitzgerald. She's a senior editor at American Banker, a trade publication covering the financial industry. She began by giving us an overview of these apps. 
Venmo has been around for years, very popular originally with younger consumers. Cash App has really taken off. It's extremely popular. And Zelle started kind of slow, but with a few handful of big banks, but it picked up momentum very quickly. In the last couple of years, they claim to be processing a million dollars a minute, at least. And people are using it for to exchange money with friends and family and to pay bills, to pay rent. Businesses use it to send money directly to people's bank account. It's great because it's free and it's literally instant and it's quite secure. The other thing is a lot of people really are living paycheck to paycheck. And many of these people through research we've learned operate at the, they have a split second timing on paying their bills. They have in their head exactly which bills are due when. They can't, they can't afford to wait a day. It has to go through today or they'll get a late fee. Absolutely. I mean, I do have to ask you, though, is fraud a bigger concern with these digital payment services than, you know, traditional banking? Fraud continues to be a problem across the financial sphere, although I'd say our expectations for having no fraud are also rising because as things get quicker and more efficient, we expect things to be perfect. Now, there are two kinds of, of fraud that we're concerned about. What is called unauthorized fraud that's been around forever. That's where the criminals intercept your personal information and they, they somehow do an unauthorized credit card or debit card transaction. You're not liable for that. But when you're the one who's actually directing the transaction, like with Zelle, you could accidentally send the money to the wrong person. Now, these payments through Zelle are instant, but they're also final and it comes right out of your bank account. So people are mad about the fact that they're being tricked. The scams are very complicated and even, even very intelligent expert people are falling for them. So there's been a real pushback from lawmakers and from consumer advocates to make banks take more responsibility for allowing these scams to happen. So what's the best way to stay safe? Because you have those type of scams. I've even heard of people maybe asking to borrow your phone and make a, a call and then cash in themselves or something like that. Because it's or just, you know, because it's so easy. Um, should, should we think of our phones now as our credit cards and never like hand them over to anyone? Well, actually, yeah, that's that's one way of looking at it. But in many ways, these transactions have never been safer. In most cases, your phone is protected with the biometrics. Technology is constantly improving to try to stay one step ahead of these, uh, what we call the fraudsters. <laughs> but the fraudsters are also using the same technology to invent new, new tricks. So yeah, you have to safeguard your phone and you have to safeguard your identity and use common sense. And also there's quite a bit of information about the red flags that you might encounter when you're using Zelle. The red flags are, Someone you don't know is asking you to send money. You should never do that. And the banks have, have made that very clear. You should never respond to anything that's like urgent because there's no, there's no need for urgency. That's, that's a big red flag for a scam. And of course, routine transactions. Don't, don't use Zelle to pay for something that you don't already have in hand because you may, you're just sending money to someone you don't know. You, you have no idea whether, you, whether you'll get that merchandise. That's Kate Fitzgerald a senior editor at American Banker. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you.
You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. More than 200 workers at one of the largest publishing companies in the country have been on strike for months now. Striking workers at HarperCollins Publishing held a rally last week at the steps of News Corp, the publisher's parent company, and planned to stay out longer. NPR's Andrew Limbong reports. It's been a kind of rainy and dreary in New York City lately, but on Wednesday, the sun was out as crowds of people rallied outside of News Corp's corporate offices in support of the HarperCollins union workers. We're a little tired, but morale is still quite high. Paris Turner is an editorial assistant at HarperCollins. The striking workers have spent these past 50 business days sending a rotating group of people over to picket at the HarperCollins office. For Turner, it's been an exhausting but invigorating experience. Historically, when I've hung out with other publishing people, it tends to be very like, uh, our industry is so bad, and it's just like complaining about work. When we're gathering, we're actively working to make publishing a better place. The HarperCollins Union has been on strike since mid-November, but they've been working without a contract since April. The major asks from the union are, one, stronger union protections, two, more support for diverse employees, and three, higher wages, particularly for folks at the bottom tier who the union wants to see get paid at least 50000 a year. HarperCollins declined to offer anyone up for an interview, but sent a statement saying they've negotiated in good faith with the union for more than a year. But, quote, unfortunately, union leadership continues to push far-reaching demands rather than working together to come to a fair and reasonable agreement for both sides. The workers and union leaders I talked to said they haven't heard from management since the strike began. This is a sign that employers feel like they don't have to come to the table. Eric Blanc is an assistant professor of labor studies at Rutgers University. When you're up against such a powerful boss who remains dead set in trying to prevent workers from winning their demands, it's going to come to the broader labor movement, the broader public and politicians to put their weight to bear. The longer it goes, the more people would like to see it resolved and resolved in the union's favor. Chelsea Hensley is a literary agent at KT Literary. Agents are the people who take new books from authors and sell them to publishers. And Hensley helped organize an open letter of other literary agents supporting the union, stating they wouldn't be sending any new projects to HarperCollins beyond those already under contract until an agreement is reached. More than 200 signed. I myself have four submissions that were going out this month that Harper is not getting. If you do that math, that's hundreds of submissions that Harper's not getting, that their competitors are getting. Speaking of competitors and the publishing game, there are only a handful of other big companies making up the so-called Big Five publishing houses. Of these, HarperCollins is the only one with a union. According to Blanc, the labor professor, it's a remnant of the white-collar organizing wave of the 1940s that hit a dead end with the 1947 Taft-Hartley Act, which, among other things, expelled radicals from union leadership positions. The white-collar union movement really didn't survive in most places. And what's anomalous is the HarperCollins Union did survive and lived to see an uptick in the 1970s and then particularly in the last recent years, a more major uptick. But that hasn't yet spread to the other four of the big five publishing companies. But if the HarperCollins Union gets the wages and protections they're asking for, it could set a higher standard for the rest of the publishing industry going forward, even if they're not unionized. It's an uphill climb, though. The striking workers have been without a paycheck for months now, but they're already planning another big rally in February. Andrew Limbong, NPR News. 
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. This week, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu delivers her first State of the City address that take pla- takes place at 7 p.m. Wednesday at the new MGM Music Hall at Fenway. WBUR will provide special live coverage and analysis of the speech. Wu is expected to discuss her legislative agenda, which includes giving Boston a seat on the MBTA's board of directors and implementing rent stabilization measures. On Tuesday, the Massachusetts Department of Transportation hosts the first of two virtual public meetings to discuss efforts to replace the Bourne and Sagamore bridges. The aging structures connect Cape Cod with mainland Massachusetts. The meetings will focus on project updates, including an overview of the types of replacement bridges under consideration. Officials say this is a critical infrastructure improvement, but the federal government so far has rejected two grant applications seeking funding toward the nearly $4 billion price tag. The federal government is allowing the state of Maine to move forward on a plan to float a dozen wind turbines 45 miles off Portland. Maine will be the first state to operate such a project. The Bureau of Ocean Energy Management will determine the final size and location of the project. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Catchlight Painting, committed to meticulous interior and exterior painting, including new and historic properties. See their portfolio at catchlightpainting.com. The classic diesel school bus is loud. Its exhaust can trigger asthma, and it isn't great for the environment. That exhaust is filled with particulate matter and toxins. So some Massachusetts districts are switching to electric buses. It's awesome. It's not noisy. Yeah, well, some of the kids are a bit loud, so. Our story tomorrow on WBUR's Morning Edition. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at AECF.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. The Real Housewives franchise on Bravo is no stranger to tossing drinks, flipping tables, and throwing shade. But some housewives are finding themselves on the wrong side of the law, and the consequences are steep. The Daily Beast entertainment writer Kendall Cunningham joins me now to talk about what happens when the real housewife lifestyle goes wrong. Welcome to the program. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. I am a huge Real Housewives fan. I don't get to watch as much as I would like. But let's start with Jen Shaw, a cast member on the Real Housewives of Salt Lake City who was sentenced this month to six and a half years in prison for running a telemarketing scheme that defrauded elderly people. You wrote that fans were watching this sentencing like they were waiting for the Super Bowl. Like, why do you think people were so invested? I think it's a confluence of things. I think culturally at the moment, we're very invested in the scammer story and true crime, especially when it comes to women. I think it's still, you know, very novel to people to see women 
engage in criminal behavior or running, you know, a shady business or committing white collar crimes. Um, and I also think Jen Shaw specifically was never popular from the beginning. You know, she has a lot of, you know, angry outbursts and, you know, has been lashing out at castmates. And she drinks a lot. Yes. She... <laughs> and then she go off when she starts drinking, cursing people out. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, she's not, she never presented herself as a likable character ever since her first season on Salt Lake City. And, and Jen Shaw is not the only real housewife who has been charged with or found guilty of a crime um, while also starring on the show. I mean, crime has always existed on the show. You know, you have Teresa Judice and her ex husband, Joe, who went to prison. You know, Apollo Nida, who was Phaedra Park's husband on Real Housewives of Atlanta, who went to prison on, you know, Rico charges. Um, and obviously Erica Jane being this huge bombshell over the past two years with the accusations against her attorney husband, Tom Girardi, and the allegations that he was misusing um, clients' funds. I think there's been this groundswell of interest in seeing true crime sort of infiltrate the Real Housewives franchise. And I think that Jen Shaw not only facing charges, but pleading guilty was very rewarding and exciting to a lot of people. And, you know, a lot of people may not realize uh, the, the Real Housewives first aired in 2006 in Orange County, and many other cities have been added since. I watched some of those original seasons. As did I. <laughs> but <laughs> how has the nature of the show changed over the years? Because at first it was a little more low-key, but it's, like, changed over the years, right? Yeah, I mean, if you look back at the old seasons of, like, New York and um, OC and Atlanta, it's a lot of mundane drama having to do with like i don't know someone threw a party and they weren't they didn't invite this one person that's the biggest thing the invite gets lost in the mail yeah that used to be the biggest crime (laughs) on bravo was not letting not letting nini leaks into sheree's into the party party and now i feel like there's been this huge shift i feel like housewives fans had this appetite for bombshells Mm. as opposed to the more, you know, day-to-day social situations that you have amongst a group of girlfriends. Yeah, no, that that is, that's a key insight. I mean, you said, though, that The Real Housewives has been groundbreaking in a lot of ways by changing the idea of what a housewife is, and a lot of these women are not housewives (laughs) or even married (laughs) or whatever. It's, It's definitely expanded the definition, right? Yeah, and, you know, Andy Cohen, who's, you know, obviously executive, produces all the shows, has talked about this a lot, how the show has grown from representing, you know, women who are living off of rich husbands to women that are driven and independent. Bravo is just, you know, depicting flawed women as they are. Housewives has a completely different the definition is not relevant at all. That was the Daily Beast entertainment writer, Kendall Cunningham. Thank you so much for coming on and talking with us about one of my favorite subjects, Real Housewives. <laughs> Thank you for having me. This is an absolute pleasure. Here's a story you might know. Once upon a time, there was a little old woman and a little old man who lived together in a little old house. They were lonely, so the little old lady decided to make a man out of stinky cheese. I'm John Sheska, author of The Stinky Cheese Man, 30 years ago, apparently. And I'm Lane Smith, 
illustrator of the Stinky Cheese Man from, I guess, 30 years ago, they tell me. It's the title story in their 1992 children's book, The Stinky Cheese Man and Other Fairly Stupid Tales. Some of the others in this award-winning collection, The Princess and The Bowling Ball, The Really Ugly Duckling, and maybe you've heard of her, Cinder Rumpelstiltskin. John Sheska and Lane Smith have worked together for decades. For our series, Picture This, they revisit the Stinky Cheese Man and how their partnership began. I met Lane through my wife, who was an art director at Sport Magazine. And I was off trying to sell children's books, manuscripts, not having much luck. And she said, oh, you should meet this guy who just did some art for the magazine. And the reason I did art for the magazine was because my wife, she was my girlfriend at the time, Molly Leach, was working with John's wife, Jerry, at that same magazine. I ended up teaching elementary school for a whole stretch of about 10 years. But when I first met Lane, I had already been teaching for maybe five or six years. All of my stuff came out of teaching kids, and I just had soaked myself in children's literature and read all everything I could get my hands on. And I read it with groups of kids. And then I was bringing all of my, you know, favorite literary devices and, and books that I loved, metafiction and stuff like Tristram Shandy that just were books about books. And then when I met Lane, it was like he was bringing this wealth of experience from the art world. I don't know, just bringing pure art. And it seemed like such a good match. It's funny because we've done so many books since then, together and apart. And when I look back at The Stinky Cheese Man, I think the artwork in that and the design definitely doesn't look like a kid's book. It looks like it came out of yeah. magazines and, you know, exactly the stuff we were doing at the time. It was it was like stuff I was doing for Rolling Stone or whatever. And I think there must have been some of that appeal too. Yeah, yeah. And that was exactly what I was looking to do in writing it because in my classroom I would be reading just some terrible, like, leveled readers and my second graders would go, Mr. Shesko, why are we even reading this? And it's just this group of kids who, like, you have to hold their interest when you're reading to them. You can't explain why it's a good book or how it's going to make you a better person. <laughs> so I was just, like, unconsciously, I think, testing out stuff, like telling my second graders, like, hey, have you ever heard this story about a guy who woke up one morning, he was a bug? And they're like, no, really? I went, yeah, really? <laughs> Franz Kafka, it happened to him, I'm pretty sure. And they were all just completely taken with it. I thought that was Eric Carle who did the one with the bug. <laughs> yeah, that was later Eric Carle when oh, he got okay. a little darker. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like there were two schools back then. There were the earnest books, and we loved those, and there were the funny books. But what you did, which was interesting, was you brought parody to it. And up until then, if there was parody, like if Tex Avery did parody in a cartoon, it was almost more aimed at the adults. And you weren't winking at the adults. You were writing parody for kids that every kid had read The Gingerbread Man. So then when you say The Stinky Cheese Man, they get the joke. Yeah. To set it up a little bit, too, the evolution was uh, the first book Lane and I published was The True Story of the Three Pigs. And it just took one fairy tale and it changed the narrator. And I thought, 
oh my God, this is like my favorite. It's like Vladimir Nabokov. He's a total unreliable narrator. And then it just, it roared and people just loved it. I had all these other fairy tales I had kind of deconstructed and messed up. Uh, and then I thought, why don't we just collect all of these in a book? And it'll be a great investigation of what a book is. We can destruct, deconstruct every piece of what a book is, starting with the cover, the end papers, <laughs> the title page. And then we can get rid of the narrator. We can get rid of plot. We can get rid of the action. And really, I just made it my mission to mess with every element of storytelling. So that's what it is. It's an entire collection, kind of hosted by Jack the narrator, and he takes you through a bunch of fairy tales. Uh, our favorite being the gingerbread man that got changed just a little bit. Only one element. The parents didn't make the little man out of gingerbread. They made him out of terrible smelling cheese. I mean, that was the thing. You had all these great stories, and then once you had that spine we could hang these things off of it anyway. Yeah. So John would come over to my studio and we had a big bulletin board up, not unlike a production storyboard for a film. And we would just arrange stuff and rearrange stuff and say, well, how about if we started with this one and then we put this one at the end and maybe this character could walk out of that story and go into this. And it just, it was one of those serendipitous things that just, I think one day we looked at the big board and it all worked, and it was it had yeah. a beginning, a middle, and an end, and a lot of messing up in between. That's the other piece we love to tell people, too, because everyone, of course, says, like, oh, man, what were you guys smoking when you put that together? It's like, well, it's kind of hard work, actually. <laughs> we had to put in a lot of days where everything has to make sense. Uh, and the other benefit was to be in the room with Lane and Molly. And it's just essential to us. It's the give and take of both arts telling the story. Like, it's not just adding pictures on later. It was Lane and I sitting down. And then Molly was so essential with the design. Because I remember, like, Lane and I would just, we would crack each other up because we think we're just the funniest people on the planet. And then we'd come in and show Molly what we decided. Like, ooh, ooh, let's have all the words run off the page. She went, well, that's all right. But you know what would be better? What if they got smaller? What if they got smaller and bigger? And we were like, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's way better, actually. <laughs> and also, you have to remember, this was pre-digital, so it was a lot harder to make those changes and nudge things because you'd have to do everything by hand. And uh, there's a lot of collage elements. I think the one constant in all my work is texture. With, for instance, Stinky Cheese Man, what I did was I used thin coats of oil paint and then I would spray them with a water-based varnish and I would get out a hair dryer and blow it and <laughs> it would dry it instantly and the paint would beat up because these things would react to each other. But I would just build up layer and layer of oil and I would blow dry them and spray them and I would move the paints around with my fingers. Yeah, I think the short answer for Lane's technique is it's illegal now <laughs> because you had yeah. a spray booth for a while in your studio, right? I did have a spray. That's probably why I'm seeing a neurologist like now. Like you, you go in a room. <laughs> I was like, Doc, I've been very dizzy lately. <laughs> John and I both like animation too. And with the picture book, you have the unique ability to turn the page. And it's almost a form of animation. So if you keep all the background elements basically the same, and then you flip the page, 
for instance, in the really ugly duckling, and one character just gets bigger and uglier. It's almost like animation if you flip back and forth, back and forth. It's like a flip book. Well, and that's the stuff that gets such a great laugh. I think someone sitting in an office would read The Really Ugly Duckling Grew Up to a Really Ugly Duck, and it just lands hard in text. But you turn that page and you see the big duck that Lane paints is exactly the same. He's just bigger, like the saliva hanging off his beak, the pimples on his belly just got larger. And kids point that out to me. They go like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I could tell you my favorite line, which is, do you think it's Chester? <laughs> <laughs> which is from the story Cinder Rumpelstiltskin, where Rumpelstiltskin is trying to get Cinderella to... Um, you know, guess his name, and he's, I don't know why, it just cracks me up every time I hear it. Like, and he just asks her, do you think it's Chester? <laughs> Chester. Yeah, it's right here. So you want to try to guess my name, said the clever little man. Cinderella looked at him. No, not really. Come on, do you think it's Chester? <laughs> I don't even remember that line. That's oh, amazing. really? See, Molly will say that at least once a month. We'll be somewhere and... I'll say, hey, look at this. And, you know, something in the supermarket, she'll say, do you think it's Chester? <laughs> it's funny. Deep funny, too. It's like, it's, these are stories that have been around for hundreds of years. They're so deep. And you just tweak them a little bit for this new audience. <laughs> and, they're just, and they can crack you up. Sometimes I'll get an email to my website where people say something, a book I've done has offended them in some way. And why did you write this? And... I said, well, I didn't write it for your kid. You know, it's it's. I just yeah. wrote it for like-minded people who will find it funny. I, there is no message. Yeah, I think that's absolutely like always been another common ground of like we don't want to tell kids what to think. Like you read it, see what you think, <laughs> see what comes out of it. But that's the moral right there. That's 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 <laughs> yeah. That's, I guess that's... that's it. You know, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, what do you think? Use your own head. Exactly. <laughs> I vote for no moral. What do you say, John? Absolutely. That was exactly going to be my answer. There's actually not a moral. <laughs> that was John Sheska and Lane Smith talking about their Caldecott honor book, The Stinky Cheese Man. Our series, Picture This, was produced by Samantha Balaban and edited by Melissa Gray. In addition, from NPR News, I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Noom, a personalized weight loss program designed to give people knowledge to set new goals and the tools to stick to them for good. Learn more at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com. From Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food, on the web at theschmidt.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station.
Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's coming up on 10 o'clock as Weekend Edition Sunday continues. It's 30 degrees in Boston with clouds today and highs in the upper 30s. Some rain tonight. Tomorrow, rain could mix with snow and sleet. After that, some snow likely, but that could mix with rain. Could accumulate something like one to two inches. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Montgomery Carroll Group, guiding buyers and sellers in Brookline and Newton. More about Matt Montgomery, Lauren Carroll, and their team at mcgroupcompass.com. I'm Asma Khalid, and I love a good story. That's why I love NPR's politics beat. There's always plenty of drama and suspense. Your car has a story, too. It's been there for daily life and memorable events. So when it's time for a new car, let your old car do one more good deed. Donate it to this station, and we'll turn it into tomorrow's stories. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. A mass shooting in Monterey Park, California, has left at least 10 people dead as crowds were gathered to celebrate the Lunar New Year. We'll have the latest for you on that. Also, the city of Selma was hit by devastating storms. We check in with civil rights activist Joanne Bland about her hometown. It hurt so bad to see my beloved home look like it is. In all my years, I've not experienced this. Plus, our friends at Alt Latino bring us some new tunes for the new year. It's Sunday, January 22nd. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Police in Southern California are in the middle of a manhunt for the gunman who opened fire last night at a ballroom dance studio in Monterey Park, east of Los Angeles. Andrew Myers with the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. He says there are multiple victims. Ten that are deceased at the scene and an additional, we believe, at least 10 at local hospitals. Meyer says the condition of the wounded range from stable to critical. Monterey Park has a large population of Asian Americans and the gunman opened fire following a Lunar New Year celebration, but Meyer says a motive is not clear. More classified material has been found at President Biden's home in Wilmington, Delaware. NPR's Marie Andrusevich reports the FBI found six documents during this latest search on Friday. The president's lawyer, Bob Bauer, announced this latest search last night. Assistant U.S. Attorney Joseph Fitzpatrick confirmed that it had been planned and agreed to ahead of time. The search took nearly 13 hours and yielded classified items from Biden's time as a senator and his vice president, including handwritten notes. The level of classification of the documents is not clear. The president and first lady were not present during the search, but Biden's personal and White House attorneys were. Biden has maintained that the searches will reveal no wrongdoing, saying there's no there there. 
Nonetheless, the ongoing discoveries are drawing criticism of the president ahead of an expected announcement that he'll seek re-election. Maria Drusevich, NPR News, Washington. President Biden spending the weekend in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, and did not respond to shouted questions about White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain. Klain is reported to be preparing to leave his post. Abortion rights activists are marking the 50th anniversary today of the Roe v. Wade decision that legalized abortion nationwide. NPR Sarah McCammon reports that Women's March leaders say they're now focusing on waging battles for abortion rights at the state level after the Supreme Court overturned it. With the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization decision last June, the Supreme Court reversed decades of precedent and opened the door to many new restrictions. Women's March Executive Director Rachel O'Leary Carmona says her organization is rallying abortion rights supporters with a heavy focus on state policies. We are in a posture at the federal level where the fight just can't continue there anymore. There's, there's no more fight to fight. We're at the end of the road there for now until we change some other conditions. And so what that means is that the fight moves now to the states. The group is holding this year's National Women's March in Wisconsin in an effort to draw attention to an upcoming state Supreme Court race that could be crucial in determining access to abortion there. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. Vice President Kamala Harris will be marking Roe's 50th anniversary with a speech in Tallahassee, Florida. She is expected to announce that President Biden has signed a memorandum aimed at uh, protecting access to medication abortion. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The Chelsea Democrat who led the Massachusetts Senate for several years, starting in 1996, is being remembered for his work to pass landmark legislation. Thomas Birmingham died Friday at the age of 73. WBUR State House reporter Steve Brown has more. Birmingham rose quickly through the ranks of the state Senate after first being elected in 1990. He was instrumental in the crafting of the state's 1993 education reform law and was then named chair of the powerful Senate Ways and Means Committee. His colleagues elected him to lead the chamber three years later after longtime Senate President William Bulger resigned to become the head of the UMass system. Birmingham had to give up his seat in 2002 in order to make his ill-fated bid to become governor, finishing third in a four-way Democratic primary. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is giving her first State of the City address this week. That is set for 7 p.m. Wednesday at the new MGM Music Hall at Fenway. WBUR will have special live coverage and analysis of the speech. Wu recently said her legislative agenda includes giving Boston a seat on the MBTA's board of directors and implementing rent stabilization measures. A legendary figure in the heyday of Boston's alternative rock scene of the 1980s and 90s has died. Gary Smith owned Ford Apache Studios and produced albums by artists including the Pixies, Throwing Muses, and Blake Babies. He also worked on records by Billy Bragg and 10,000 Maniacs and other groups recording at Ford Apache included Radiohead, Weezer, Dinosaur Jr., Lemonheads, Mighty Money, Boston's, Morphine, and Buffalo Tom. Smith was a founding member of the band Lifeboat. He died at his home in New Hampshire last week after a short illness. Gary Smith was 64 years old. It is 33 degrees in Boston with clouds today and highs in the upper 30s. This is 90.9 WBUR.
WBUR supporters include ECMC Foundation, working to improve post-secondary educational outcomes for underserved students through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Ten people have been confirmed killed in a mass shooting last night in Monterey Park, a city east of Los Angeles. The shooting happened after a Lunar New Year celebration that attracted thousands of people, leading to fears it might be a hate crime, though this is unconfirmed. Monterey Park is predominantly Asian American. NPR Sergio Olmos has been at the scene. Good morning. Good morning. Sergio, can please tell us what is known so far? L.A. County Sheriff's Captain Andrew Meyer gave a news br- briefing this morning. He said last night inside a ballroom dancing venue, there was um, officers from the Monterey Park Police Department responded to a call at 10.22 p.m. Pacific time. They arrived to find people, quote, pouring out of the venue, screaming. They found multiple victims inside. Ten people have been confirmed dead at the scene. At least 10 others were rushed to the hospital uh, nearby. They're in various conditions from stable to critical. This was at the press conference this morning. The Monterey Park Fire Department responded to the scene and treated the injured and pronounced 10 of the victims deceased at the scene. There were at least 10 additional victims that were transported to numerous local hospitals. Police said of the shooter that he's known to be a man and he fled the scene and is not in custody, and that's the only details I gave about the shooter. What do we know about the possibility of this being a targeted hate crime against people of Asian heritage? So the L.A. County Sheriff's Captain Meyer stressed that it's too early, that he said, to ascribe a motive to the crime. He gave no description of the gunman or his motives. He said it's unclear if this was a targeted attack. And the authorities are investigating whether uh, this was racially motivated, saying, quote, we will look at every angle as far as whether it was a hate crime or not. He said the shooting happened on a street where there is a lot of Asian owned businesses and restaurants, uh, grocery stores. Monterey Park itself is a small city. It's about 60,000 people. 65 percent of that are Asian Americans, 27 percent Latino. It's one of the first cities in the United States to have a majority of residents with Asian ancestry. It's a quiet, peaceful area. And tonight's shootings have sent shockwaves throughout the community. So tell us about these uh, New Year celebrations that, that happen there. Yeah, Monterey Park has been hosting one of the state's largest Lunar New Year celebrations. It's supposed to go on for two days. Uh, today's celebration on Sunday has been canceled for security concerns, obviously. Um, the city converted its downtown area into a kind of carnival zone with food stalls and amusement rides. People were posting their pictures and videos of themselves enjoying the fun. Um, this is the first year that the Lunar New Year is an official state holiday in California, and that's the first time that that's happened anywhere in the United States. So uh, what might come next? So we know that we know that President Biden has been briefed on the mass shooting in a tweet the press secretary uh, Corinne Jean-Pierre uh, said that the president has been briefed by the Homeland Security Advisor on the mass shooting in Monterey Park. 
He directed her to make sure that the FBI is providing full support to local authorities and to update him regularly uh, as more details are known. There's still a lot of unanswered questions. We don't know who the shooter is. We don't have a description of him. We don't know why he's not in custody. We know that the FBI has joined in in the investigation. They're assisting Monterey Park Police and the LA County Sheriffs, and they're going to be determining uh, whether this was a hate crime. The motive in this, that's something that they stress they just don't know. It's too, too early to tell. That's NPR National Security Correspondent Sergio Olmos. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The FBI found more classified documents at President Biden's private Delaware residence on Friday. The White House is still dealing with the criticism over the two-month delay in disclosing the discovery of the first set of documents. And all this is happening on the background of a tense congressional showdown over the raising of the debt ceiling. We're joined now by NPR's national political correspondent, Mara Liason. Good morning, Mara. Good morning. So these latest documents, we're told, were found during a consensual search of the president's private residence. And all of this is happening while we're also hearing that the president's chief of staff is stepping down, right? That's right. The Justice Department on Friday, as you said, completed a search of President Biden's home in Wilmington. They did turn up some more classified documents. Some of them date to his time in the Senate. Some of them date to his time as vice president. The White House says it is fully cooperating with the Justice Department. But this is exasperating Democrats, and it's worrying them. They think Biden can't afford to have this kind of problem just when he's about to announce for re-election. But you're right, there is one White House staffer who's not going to be sticking around to deal with this particular problem, and that is Ron Klain, the chief of staff. He is reported by multiple media outlets to be preparing to depart. He is the longest-serving Democratic White House chief of staff in more than 50 years, and he's an even longer-time top Biden staffer. So the White House will be losing a lot of Biden institutional memory. But this is pretty rare. This is a White House that has had very relatively little attrition and turnover. And, and so, you know, moving on to that other big problem that the White House is facing, the debt ceiling, the Treasury Department said it could move some cash around like we all do when we got to pay some bills to fund government spending. But that's for now. So what's the plan for House Republicans? Like, what, what are they trying to do here? Well, the Republicans say that they will not raise the debt ceiling until there's some negotiations and spending is cut. The White House says it will not negotiate with what they call hostage takers. Uh, they want the Republicans to come out and say, what will they cut? Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, the defense budget, those are the biggest items in the budget. Donald Trump actually released a video over the weekend telling Republicans not to touch Social Security or Medicare. But this is a very different kind of Republican majority in the House. Uh, it's more of a government shutdown party than a than a party that that is focused on the basic functions of governance, like paying bills. And also, the new MAGA majority in the House is not as beholden to the institutional forces that used to pressure Republicans to perform basic functions of governance, like big business or big donors. They're much more attuned to social media and conservative TV. So there is this feeling in the business community and in Washington that the risks of actually defaulting on the debt, which would have terrible consequences for the United States economy, is actually much bigger this time. 
Well, you know, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy compared the government to a child saying you don't just hand it a credit card and max it out. But, you know, I mean, isn't this a different type of situation? Because the time to cut spending um, would be when the budget is being set, presumably, and not when the bills are due. Or am I getting that wrong? Yes, you're getting it right. And this is why people get cynical about Washington and they think government is dysfunctional. This is not a budget negotiation where you're arguing about your spending priorities. This is spending that has already been approved by Congress. This is money that has already been spent. And we have this crazy system where unlike ordinary people, Congress can spend over their quote credit card limit or debt limit and then later because they're their own credit card company, they can take a separate vote to raise their credit limit. The debt limit was raised three times during the Trump administration and Republicans didn't seem to mind that at all. In in the 30 seconds we have left, uh, you know, today would have been the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Um, You know, the vice president, Kamala Harris, uh, will be giving a speech in Tallahassee, Florida today, um, talking about uh, what the the administration is doing. What, What can you say about that? Well, the politics of abortion are really changing. Anti-abortion activists won the legal battle. They got Roe overturned in the Supreme Court before they had won the battle for public opinion. And now the question is, where do the new battle lines get drawn? Will abortion opponents try to ban abortion or will they try to do something more modest? And for the first time, Democrats feel the abortion issue is something that is actually working for them politically. That's NPR national political correspondent Mara Eliason. Thank you so much, Mara. You're welcome. One consequence of climate change and a warming planet. Polar bears are spending more time on land instead of Arctic ice. This means more interactions with humans. Scientists say attacks are rare, but last week a mother and child were tragically killed by a polar bear in a remote Alaskan village. According to the Associated Press, the incident has residents talking about reviving polar bear patrols. Such patrols raise awareness about humans coexisting with polar bears and try to protect both bears and humans. The AP reports that some tactics used by patrollers to keep polar bears at bay include gently revving snowmobiles or firing beanbags from shotguns. In Russia, one patrol group placed walrus carcasses far from villages to lure bears away. And in Canada, polar bears that can't be frightened off are captured and cared for in chilled environments, called bear jails, until they can be safely flown back to the ice. Funding has been an obstacle over the years, but there is renewed hope. More will be done to encourage these programs. We're following that story out of Monterey Park, just east of Los Angeles, where at least 10 people have been killed in a mass shooting at a dance hall. There's also at least 10 more people injured, with the gunmen remaining at large. The incident took place on Saturday night as crowds had gathered to celebrate the Lunar New Year. We'll continue to bring you the latest on this story throughout the day.
You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 1018 and ahead on Weekend Edition, Alt Latino queues up some new music. Coming to WBUR City Space this Wednesday, January 25th, historian and journalist Dart Adams and Danish rapper Slyman discuss their new book, Instead We Became Evil. For tickets, go to WBUR.org events. Donate your old car to WBUR. It'll have a new life supporting the news, and you could get a tax deduction. Go to WBUR.org slash cars, and thanks. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack Repertory Theater with Letters from Home, a true story exploring the intergenerational legacy of a Cambodian family through February 5th, MRT.org. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. A manhunt is underway in Southern California. Police are searching for a gunman who opened fire at a dance venue in Monterey Park near Los Angeles last night. Ten people are confirmed dead and ten injured. Another search of President Biden's home in Wilmington, Delaware, has turned up more material containing classified markings. A statement from Biden's lawyer last night says six more items were found and that some of them date from Biden's time as a senator and as vice president. The White House has not commented on the future of Ron Klain, President Biden's chief of staff. Klain is reported to be preparing to step down. President Biden is spending the weekend in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, and did not respond to shouted questions about Klain. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Cruise Lines, cruising the Maine coast where travelers can experience a lobster bake and explore New England's maritime heritage. Learn more at AmericanCruiseLines.com NPR. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Protesters and police continue to clash in cities around Peru as anti-government demonstrators step up their demands for the current president to resign. Yesterday, officers in Lima raided a university where protesters had taken refuge, arresting hundreds. Police stations were attacked in several cities in the country, and authorities closed the Incan citadel of Machu Picchu after train service to the site was damaged. As NPR's Kerry Khan reports, there doesn't seem to be a quick solution in the works to end the unrest. Police in riot gear block angry protesters from entering San Marcos National University, the oldest higher education institute in the Americas. Just minutes before, an armored vehicle rammed open a metal gate, allowing officers wielding batons and riot shields to rush in. Protesters shout that officers are abusing their authority and to let the protesters go. 
Shortly after, half a dozen packed buses leave the university with a police escort. Most of those arrested came to Lima from the rural south to demand the current president, Dina Boluarte, resign. And they'd been staying on the campus for days. Maria Escobar lives across the street from the university and had been bringing the protesters food and water. The middle school teacher says their demands have grown beyond the resignation of Boluarte. Calls now are for justice for the more than 50 people who have died since protests broke out last December. That's when the former president, Pedro Castillo, a political newcomer, was impeached. Castillo had tried to dissolve Congress. Protesters on the streets of Lima for a third consecutive night are now calling for major political changes, too. They want snap elections and a new constitution. Boluarte says she's not going anywhere and has called the protesters vandals. She's vowed a crackdown. Fernando Franco, a psychologist who came to protest with his wife, says Peru's political system is broken. Los partidos políticos acá en el Perú son muy débiles. Solamente hay caudillos. Mas no partido político bien formados. Political parties in Peru are very weak. They're just one person looking out for themselves. Nothing formal at all, he says. Peru does hold regular elections, but in the last five years, six presidents have come and gone. Many past presidents have faced corruption charges and some are in jail. Analysts blame increasing polarization and political rules that too easily allow Congress to remove a president. Eric Farnsworth with the Council of the Americas in Washington, D.C., says while Peru has its peculiarities, democracies throughout the hemisphere are under pressure. Similar issues are affecting the populace, which seems to be deeply distressed and, and even cynical about whether democracy can improve their lives in a meaningful way. Half of all Peruvians say democracy is not working for them. Mirta Vasquez, who was a prime minister in Castillo's recent government, says the inequality gap keeps growing and the pandemic only made things worse. Too many people are being left behind, she says. Igualdad en cosas muy básicas, ¿no? Equality in even the most basic things doesn't happen in Peru. And she says there is a historic neglect by the state, and that's what the protesters are demanding get fixed. Carrie Khan, NPR News, Lima, Peru. In the northeastern Ukrainian region of Kharkiv, near the border with Russia, Ukrainian troops are standing out in the cold. They're preparing fortifications and trying to stay warm while bracing for a possible renewed Russian military offensive. The top commander in the area, Brigadier General Serhiy Melnik, gave us a tour of the living conditions his troops are enduring as they prepare for more fighting. NPR's Tim Mack has more. Sometimes, it's the days where the weather stays slightly above freezing that are the worst. This region of Ukraine has this black, tarry, sticky mud, impossible to get off your boots. Hiking through it, you feel it in every step, the suction of the mud pulling up against your feet. As a defensive feature, it worked wonders for Ukrainians fighting against the initial wave of Russian attacks last winter. In the first days of war, when they did a full-scale invasion, they encountered this problem. Their vehicles got stuck. Our firing made it so they couldn't take back their vehicles, and they had to retreat. 
General Melnik is guiding us through the defensive front lines, trenches not far from Russian territory. In September, Ukrainian forces retook all of Kharkiv Oblast, pushing Russian troops out. His soldiers are now occupying former Russian positions and building new ones of their own in the mud. We already know the ambitions of that terrorist Putin. As of today, he's lost the first way of combat actions in Ukraine. But we already have some intelligence. And they don't hide the fact that they mobilize a lot of personnel. And they will try to flood our country with a second wave to try and break us fully. There are occasional bombardments. But the cold has meant that the battle lines, like the countryside, have been mostly frozen. That's according to Melnik's subordinate, Lieutenant Colonel Maxim Zinchenko. The winter has a really strong impact. Bad weather, difficulty for vehicles passing through terrain. Now the enemy can only use roads, and the winter makes it harder at the checkpoints and the trenches. To get to these trenches, you have to pass countless Ukrainian checkpoints where soldiers stand guard out in the elements, looking for signs of enemy personnel. Melnik says that the warmth of these troops is a key condition of morale as they await a possible attack. The places in which they live, they have stoves and other conditions to stay warm. And there is nothing that can scare or break them. At one such checkpoint stood Alexander. Like the other enlisted troops interviewed, he declined to give his surname. Warm clothing and short shifts are key, he said. There are usually two people always outside on the street. But the moment you get cold, you can change with the other two people here and warm up. Petro was a construction worker before the war. Now he commands the crew of a tank, which spews thick, dark smoke, but not a ton of heat. He relies on hot drinks in a thermos, he told us. Sometimes they'll get an order to wait in the cold for six to eight hours. We put warm clothes on. We have heaters here. We put them on and get warm. Ukrainians have a word for the hastily built living structures in the trenches, constructed with sandbags and wood, sand and mud, oblindage. Serhiy Sharnyuk took us on a tour of his. As we enter it, we're greeted by the sweet smell of burning oak. He said this blindage and the adjoining trenches took months to build. They'll bring us prepared warm meals here, and sometimes canned meat as well. Thick blankets cover the beds, and the tables are littered with the necessities. Tea, coffee, juice. Trench candles made of wax and cardboard provide light and a little extra warmth. Nearby, a stray dog named Yulia stands watch. The soldiers feed her, and in return, she barks in the night if someone unusual approaches. And not far away, there's a Starlink satellite terminal, which gives soldiers the ability to access the Internet, even in this rural, remote area of Ukraine. It's an absolutely critical piece of equipment, General Melnik said. Any soldier, no matter the rank, can connect to this Starlink and connect with his leadership, his colleagues, and also with his family. The winter conditions are harsh, he said, but he has hope that the end of the war is in sight. I'll tell you sincerely, and you know it yourself, that every war has its beginning and its end. I am sure that 2023 will bring victory and peace in the houses of Ukrainians.
If Ukraine's partners in America and the West continue sending heavy weapons to Ukraine, Melnik said, this will be the last winter of this war on these front lines. Tim Mack, NPR News, Kharkiv. Let's check back in on a place and a person we recently got to know very well on this show. Selma gave so much. This history is so rich that um, it's sort of like Mecca, coming to Mecca. Joanne Bland is a veteran of the Civil Rights Movement and Bloody Sunday in Selma, Alabama. She's been giving tours of her hometown for over 30 years, making sure that time is never forgotten. She took us on a tour recently for Weekend Edition series on the civil rights generation. So we wanted to check on her now that Selma is hurting, hit by devastating storms and a tornado that recently swept across the region. Joanne Bland joins us now. And I, I just want to say, like, I am so sorry. And we are all so sorry to hear about what's happened to Selma. Well, <laughs> it's devastating. Um it hurts so bad to see my beloved home look like it is. Um, in all my years, I've not experienced this, but um, it's it's bad. Can you can you give us a sense of what the damage is like? I saw some videos, and I'm, the thing about being in when we were down in Selma, it was so historic, and I know you knew every inch of it. I can't imagine being in your position, seeing the damage. Yeah, the neighborhoods are, are the ones that um, are hurt the most. Um, not to mention the loss of businesses and stuff, but the neighborhoods where I grew up walking those streets and seeing those same houses that are now gone or flattened or, or have no roofs. Um, the only consolation we have is that um, God saw fit to spare us the loss of life. Thankfully, there was no loss of life, but I know people have lost homes. How are people coping? Well, when you start off being one of the poorest um, places in America, <laughs> any devastation throws us for a loop. It's hard to come back um, from any tragedy, and this has to be the worst we've ever had. Most of the houses that were destroyed, a lot of people owned. Uh, some had insurance. Um, but the majority of the people were renting, and most didn't have insurance, and, and most didn't have, frankly, didn't have anywhere to go when this hit, with no funds to get there. It reminded me so much of Katrina, that even though uh, people were alive, they still had nowhere to go. It broke my heart to find families, families living in cars that some who, that had been destroyed in the tornado. And how are you doing? How are you holding up? Because it's clear just in the time that I was with you that your heart is tied up in, in Selma. Well, don't make me cry. Um, my hometown, um, I love it. And I've spent my life trying to make it a better place. And <laughs> it seems as though you make one step forward, you get knocked back too, but I'm up to the challenge. I'm up to the challenge, and I have um, thousands of friends who will help to support us here. But um, those of you who are in the sound of my voice who can 
who know me know I love Selma and that I'm going to do everything I can, but I need your help. We need hands. We need just, just think of Selma and what it's given the world. And please give something back. I know that you always do the, the ceremony and the march on the anniversary of Bloody Sunday. Is that still going to happen? Is that still the plan? Yes, it is. We can't let it stop. First of all, um, the from the bridge down about three blocks down Broad Street, mm-hmm. nothing happened. Okay. okay. <laughs> and Brown Chapel's intact, so there's no reason we should not continue the Jubilee. Um, this would be a chance for people to come and, and support us and give something back to Selma. That's Joanne Bland, who runs Journeys for the Soul Tours in Selma, Alabama. Thank you so very much. No, thank you for having me. Yeah, and, and God bless you and God bless Selma. Pray for Selma, please. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Billions of dollars every year get funneled into agriculture research. That is, research that helps advance farming technology. The federal government pays for the vast majority of that research, but funding has fallen by a third, a loss of nearly $3 billion over the past two decades. As Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin reports, that decline has implications for agriculture's ability to adapt to climate change. Gwen Beatty tugs open the frosty door to her lab's industrial-style freezer, which houses thousands of plant and bacteria samples. It starts beeping angrily at her. And you can't have it open too long or else it beeps at you and says, I don't want to warm up. Beatty is a professor of plant pathology at Iowa State University. She recently received a $750,000 grant from the U.S. Department of Agriculture to study drought resiliency in crops, a subject of increasing importance. There's not a sustainable amount of available fresh water for agriculture everywhere in the way we're going. So we really need plants that can thrive with less water. But federal funding for that research is becoming more scarce. According to the USDA, funding levels for public agriculture research are hovering around $5 billion. That's on par with 1970s-era funding. Meanwhile, China has surpassed the U.S. in its agriculture research funding. Brazil, a major competitor in ag exports, has also increased its funding. Beth Ford is the CEO of ag giant Land Lakes. Speaking at a recent public event, she said she's worried the U.S. is falling behind in preparing for agriculture's stark future. We're going to have less arable land, less available water in the future. We know this. And at the same time, population set to go to nine and a half, 10 billion. By 2050, we have to produce more food than the last 5,000 years combined. That should be an eye-opener, she says. But while public funding for ag research has fallen over the past two decades, private funding from companies like Land Lakes has shot up. Iowa State University, for example, has seen a 50% increase in company-funded research over just the last two years. And agriculture has been at the forefront of that. Gabrielle Resch-McNally does agriculture research with American Farmland Trust, a nonprofit that promotes environmentally friendly farming. She says relying on corporations for funding could skew the overall research agenda. They're looking for ways that research can 
develop products, you know, tangible, intangible, that people will spend money on that will increase their base of profit. Research is a public good, she says, and it should mostly be up to the federal government to fund it. Those public research dollars are determined by Congress via the Farm Bill, which is set for reauthorization this year. Congresswoman Shelley Pingree sits on the Agriculture Appropriations Subcommittee. She says getting more dollars for ag research can be a tough sell with some of her colleagues. It's kind of abstract. It's not like direct funding to a program that puts, you know, milk and kids' lunches or, you know, things that people see as directly providing a service. She hopes this year's Farm Bill reauthorization, though, brings renewed attention to the issue. Farm Bill hearings have already begun. For NPR News, I'm Dana Cronin. Harvest Public Media's Katie Pikas contributed to this report. Harvest is a collaboration of public media newsrooms in the Midwest and Great Plains. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The Massachusetts Gaming Commission is devoting time this week to preparing for next week's launch of retail sports betting at the state's casinos. Tomorrow, the commission holds a roundtable with representatives from the players' associations of the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, Major League Baseball, and Major League Soccer. Among the topics, regulations protecting athlete safety. On Tuesday... The commission holds a public hearing to accept input on sports gambling regulations, including rules related to preventing minors from placing bets. Former Boston Mayor Marty Walsh might be up for a new role in the Biden administration. The Associated Press and The New York Times report the U.S. Labor Secretary is on a short list of possible candidates to become the new White House Chief of Staff. Ron Klain is expected to step down from that job soon. In honor of Ukraine's Independence Day, this afternoon people are gathering at the State House in Boston. They will form a human chain of unity on the Freedom Trail. On this day in 1919, over 300,000 Ukrainians formed a human chain as they fought for independence. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Spring semester starts January 23rd, semesteroff.com. Journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones says her series of articles for the New York Times was just meant to enhance Americans' understanding of how slavery shaped the U.S. The story of America that I learned made it seem that black people had not contributed much value to this land. So why did it become such a lightning rod for the political right? She talks about that and her new documentary series on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, working to harness the power of research to make a difference in the lives of children, teens, and young adults for more than 80 years. Learn more at wtgrantfdn.org. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. 
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us, as always, is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Hi there, Will. Good morning, Aisha. So, Will, could you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it came from listener David Rosen of Bethesda, Maryland. I said, name a food dish in 10 letters. The last syllable consists of a consonant and a vowel. Change that syllable to a single consonant sound, and you'll name another popular food item in two words. What foods are these? Well, that first one is fettuccine. Change that last syllable to a Z sound, and you get feta cheese. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I would have never in a million years gotten that. Um, It was a tough one. Uh, Our winner, Julie Gunn of Hudson, Michigan, was one of only 140 people who got the correct answer. So congratulations, Julie. Welcome to the show. Thank you. And so how long have you been playing the puzzle? Uh, Probably about 10 years. Oh, wow. And so, and what do you like to do when you're not playing the puzzle and solving very, very hard puzzles like that? Well, I make voodoo dolls and catnip toys, and I'm an online reseller. Oh, wow. You make voodoo dolls. Do you you use the voodoo dolls as cat toys or vice versa? Yes. Yes, I I can make voodoo dolls, small voodoo dolls, into catnip toys. How did you get into that? I just saw nobody around here was doing it, so I've always been interested in voodoo dolls, and so I just started making them. So you saw a void, and you said, I will fill this void. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you worded it a lot better than me. <laughs> no, that makes sense. Well, that is amazing. Um, So, uh, Will, we need to make sure we do right by this puzzle. You know, I, I was just thinking that. I want to stay on Julie's good side. <laughs> we want to stay on Julie's good side. Okay. Well, all right, Julie, are you ready to play the puzzle? Yes, I am. All right. Take it away, Will. All right, Julie and Aisha, I'm going to give you some six-letter words. For each one, change one consonant to a vowel to make another common, uncapitalized word. And which consonant you change is for you to discover. For example, if I said defect, D-E-F-E-C-T, you would say defeat, because that changes the C of defect to a vowel to make defeat. Okay, here's number one. Starch, S-T-A-R-C-H. S-T-A-R-C-H. Search. You got it, search. Number two is dental, D-E-N-T-A-L. Denial. That's it. Good job. Prison, P-R-I-S-O-N. And it's uh, changed the R. Oh, oh, oh. Um, like if you, you do this to get rid of somebody without a voodoo doll. <laughs> um, poison. Oh, poison. Oh. Goodness. Poison, is it? Good? (laughs) Yes. Right, as in W-R-I-G-H-T. Change that R. Oh, oh, yeah. Wait. Wait, is it? How about Grange, G-R-A-N-G-E? G-R-A-N-G-E. Change the first letter. Orange. Orange, is it? How about phony? P-H-O-N-E-Y. P-H-O-N-E-Y. N-E-Y. It's a variant spelling of phony. Phooey? 
<laughs> Fooey, you got it. Oh, okay. And here's your last one. There's two answers. I, I want you to get them both. And the word is casing, C-A-S-I-N-G. C-A-S-I-N-G. Okay. Casino. Casino's one. And easing. Easing. You got them both. Good job. Oh, yes. Wow. That is amazing. Well, thank you, Aisha. Thank you, Will, for helping me. Yes, and now we would not be on your bad side, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you feel? Oh, this was fun. For playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org puzzle. And Julie, what member station do you listen to? Uh, 91.7 WUOM out of Ann Arbor. That's Julie Gunn of Hudson, Michigan. Thank you so much for playing the puzzle. Thank you. So, all right, Will, what is next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from listener and New York Times crossword contributor Peter Collins from Ann Arbor, Michigan. And here's the challenge. Take a word that's in the name of several tourist attractions in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Rearrange the letters in that word to spell the names of two other nation's capitals. What are they? So again, a word that's in the name of several tourist attractions in Washington, D.C. Rearrange the letters in that word to spell the names of two other nation's capitals. What capitals are those? When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, January 26th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Aisha. Turkish families are struggling with soaring prices, and many find themselves forced to give up some of their usual winter pleasures. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports that one sign of this can be found at Istanbul's hammams, or Turkish baths, where employees say many of their customers are staying away so far this year. Hammams, or Ottoman-style bathhouses, can be found all over Istanbul, and indeed all over Turkey. Some are large and extremely ornate, blending Roman and Byzantine bathhouse styles. In earlier times, they fulfilled the need for basic cleanliness. Today, they remain popular among people looking for moments of calm in a crowded, bustling city and who also enjoy a scrub and a massage in the bargain. A small fountain and soothing music await visitors to the Galatasaray Hammam in Istanbul. A sign by the door announces that bathers have been coming here since 1481. Hamam employee Yeet Chenuk says, like many businesses, they were hit by the coronavirus pandemic. And just when things started to bounce back, a bomb went off on Istanbul's main commercial boulevard, cutting off an important stream of foreign tourists. He says they probably won't return until vacation time this spring. Right now, it's dead season. We are waiting for like the, uh, the vacations in right now is called. Normally, this time of year is when hammams rely on their Turkish customers. But Chinook says this winter, that's a problem for families trying to make ends meet as prices for food, rent, and other basics remain very high. Local customers are lower after pandemic and because of the prices are becoming higher because of the inflation. Turkey's painfully high inflation rate is something the government is keen to move past, mainly by predicting bitter times just around the corner. 
Finance Minister Nuruddin Nabadi recently gave an upbeat forecast for 2023. He predicted a long-awaited decline in the recent eye-popping price rises. The annual inflation fell sharply to 64% in December from the 84% reported in November of 2022. The decline is expected to become more pronounced in 2023. The notion that 64% inflation represents a sharp drop gives you some idea of how bad things got in Turkey last year. Many economists blame President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's insistence on keeping interest rates low, despite the downward pressure that puts on the Turkish lira, which plummeted to a 20-year record low in October. The depressed lira forced Turkish families to cut out non-essential spending, even some less expensive pleasures such as boza, a popular non-alcoholic drink. It's the color of eggnog, but it's made from fermented millet. The most popular place to find it in Istanbul is called Vefa, where in the past you could see lines going out the door and down the block. But 51-year-old Ibrahim, working the cash register, says that's not the scene these days. It's not crowded at the moment. Actually, for us, this is empty. When it was busy, there were hundreds of people standing on the street. We couldn't keep up with the demand sometimes. As for whether prices will come back to earth anytime soon, some analysts point to elections likely in May, suggesting that it may be in President Erdogan's interest to see living standards among voters improve between now and then. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. We are just a few weeks into 2023, and already I feel like I need some fresh music on my playlist. And who better to help than the crew at Alt Latino, Felix Contreras and Ana Maria Sayer. Good morning. Good morning, good morning. Good morning. So we are starting 2023 with a clean slate. What's already on your radar? You know, the end of the year is always traditionally slow. Not a lot of music coming out. And then every year, things start jumping real fast. And we brought in four tracks that have come in recently that have caught our ear. So this first track I brought is actually from the end of 2022. It's called Regalo by Colontro y Bomba Estéreo. Colontro is a Sonoran singer-songwriter who's known for kind of a mix of tropical reggae and pop. Meanwhile, Bomba Estéreo is heavy on the electro-cumbia sound, a Colombian band. So seeing the two come together for this kind of tropical, boppy track with synths and guitars really feels special. Catching your attention. Okay, a guy named Gregorio Uribe. Now, he's a very talented musician from Colombia, another Colombian musician, which is a country that has a very strong accordion tradition. This track is called Atlas. I'm going to start the track. I'm going to talk you through the beginning part because there's some interesting musical things happening. Okay, there's the accordion. Got a bit of a cumbia beat going, and underneath it's got these what are called allegory drums. They're like African djembes and descendants of African djembes that's mixed into this Colombian tradition. Check it out. 
Caminando en el desierto hallé un pastor de rodillas Sus manos llenas de arcilla me preguntaban con miedo Dime ya que Dios ha muerto, ¿quién lo debe reemplazar? Dime ya que Dios ha muerto, ¿quién lo debe reemplazar? We've done this a few times since I've started hosting Weekend Edition, and I'm detecting a difference in the music that you and Anna bring. I, I don't want to say it's an age thing, but you know, I, I, Anna's a little younger than I am, or I'm a little older than she is. But there are some places where our tastes overlap. You know, I think that, that Felix and I overlap more than you would think we do. But <laughs> I think that's the beauty of, you know, what we like to do on All Latino is we kind of find the spots where the differences happen. And it all comes back to the fact that it's almost impossible to classify just what is Latin music these days because the musicians are expanding that meaning like every day, every time we hear something new. So, so, Anna, can can you give another example of what that expansion looks like? Yeah, um, I think that this next track that I brought in is probably pretty exemplar of the ways that Felix and I maybe differ in our tastes. It's called Hedonismo, and it's by Puerto Rican rapper Viano Antiano. Hedonismo translates to hedonism in English. It is a track off of the first official album that she released back in December. This was after a very rapid rise to fame for her coming out of Puerto Rico. And a lot of that has to do with the way that she really openly expresses herself as a queer transgender woman. And she's really able to be open about that sexuality and about how she feels about that. And so this is a wonderful expression of that. I love, you know, when the girls want to talk that talk. There we talk. go. There we go. That's what I'm saying. Yes. Okay, so it's almost time to wrap this up. Felix, bring it home for us. Okay, check this out. Tem uns dias que eu acordo querendo saber we're diverting drastically yes, to the last we're going to a very, we're, <laughs> we're like slowing it down. <laughs> very different pace. With Lash, for sure. This is a guy named Lucas Santana. He's from Salvador Bahia in Brazil, which is a center of Afro-Brazilian culture and music in that country. He's a vocalist, composer, producer, dude. I've been a fan of his mixes, the myriad of folk styles of Brazil mixed with contemporary electronic music. His music is either the ancient future or a futuristic look at the past. Either way, I've been a big fan. This track is a cover of a song by Brazilian master Jorge Ben from 1974. The title is in Latin. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. <laughs> Just dig the music. Contreras and Ana Maria Sayer are the co-hosts of NPR's Alt Latino podcast. And in 2023, Alt Latino is celebrating its 13th year. Congratulations. Thank you, thank you. Thank Always you. love the music you all bring. 
Felix and Anna, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. This was so fun. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. From Noom, providing an online evaluation and the tools to help people lead healthier lives through behavior change. More information at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good morning, I'm Sharon Brody. Here's a great way to keep up with the news throughout the day. Tap to listen on the WBUR mobile app. Coming up at noon on the New Yorker Radio Hour, you'll hear about what happened and what didn't happen when a Long Island newspaper published some of the facts about George Santos months before the November election. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at Zevin.com. I'm Asma Khalid. As a political reporter for NPR, I talk to people around the country about their lives and their needs. And I believe there is one thing we all need, a news source we trust. Tens of millions come to NPR for exactly that. When you donate your old car to this station, we'll turn it into tomorrow's news. The news you trust. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.